Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Jeremy, and I have the uh, privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, my wife and I intend on moving within the next um, couple months to St. Cloud, Minnesota to try to plant a church for the glory of God. And so over the last few weeks, especially this week, our lives have been consumed with the word value, value. Um, as we seek to sell our home, it's like, what is the value of our home? And as we look to get another home in St. Cloud, it's like, what's the value of this home? And then we've got this condo that we're trying to sell, and people email us where it's like, I don't think you have the right value attached to this home. And then you schedule inspections to determine the value of the home, and its value of inspections, and its values of assessments, and value, 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 value. And in the midst of that busy week, um, I've been drawn to Exodus 33, which is where we'll be this morning. And I've been challenged personally with what I value more than anything else. Throughout this week, filled with determining the value of things, I've been confronted with the fact that I have to fight to realize that only one thing is of value, and that is God's presence. God's presence is of supreme value. So this morning, we're going to look at Exodus 33 and ask ourselves the question, how valuable is God's presence, and how can we get it? So if you haven't turned there already, uh, please turn to Exodus 33. In order to understand anything about Exodus 33, we're already picking up a story that's in motion that started in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, uh, the people are sick of Moses being up on this mountain, and so they go to Aaron, and they're like, hey, can you make us something to worship? And Aaron goes, sure, take off your earrings. He takes the earrings, throws them into the furnace, and you know, according to what he tells Moses later, he's like, I just threw in the gold, and out popped this golden calf. And so I set it up, and we started to worship it. And uh, Moses comes down, and he is hot. And the only person that's hotter than Moses in this whole thing is God. God is absolutely hot. How hot is he? Well, in Exodus 32, verse 9, he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I would make a great nation out of you. And at the beginning of chapter 33, God is still hot. Moses has come down the mountain. He has smashed the tablets. He has taken this little calf, ground it into dust, put it in the water, made the people drink it. 3,000 people have lost their lives as the tribe of Levi grabbed their swords and put them to death. And then God sends a plague. And still, still in chapter 33, God is still hot. The beginning of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought. He could have swore that God brought them out of Egypt, but now God's like, No, your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, 
to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. These first three verses really hit me the hardest as I studied this week, and um, because in these first five, in these first three verses, we see five things that are not as valuable as God's presence. But these are five things that we love, five things that we cherish, five things that we want when we think about God, but they are all less than God's presence. And we're going to go through them. The first one is this. You can write it down in your bulletin. God's presence is greater than God's plan. God's presence is greater than God's plan. God had a plan to bring Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. He knew when he would do it. He knew how he would do it. He had a plan. He knew how he was going to do it. But Israel, they did not know how he was going to do it. God gave them the plan. He's like, here's the plan. This is where you're going to go. You're going to take it. Here's the plan. He showed them the future. I'm sure there's many, many, many people here right now that are, have concerns about the future and would just absolutely love it if God came to them and told them God's plan. Anxiety is a thing. Anxiety is a big thing. People get diagnosed with anxiety, experience anxiety, anxiety attacks. Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Why? Because we don't know the future. And so how good would it feel if God came to you and said, hey, here's the plan. This is how it's going to end. I'm in a point in my life right now where I don't know if I've ever wanted God's plan so much in my life. Will the house close? Will the condo sell? Will we move in? When will we move? What day will it be? I'd love to know. Who will be there? Will we have any friends? Will my kids have any friends? Will there be a core group to start this church? Will there be a place to start this church? I would absolutely, oh, if God would give me the plan right now. Oh, it would. But I'd be settling. I'd be settling if God gave me his plan right now because there's something greater than God's plan. And I've had to remind myself of that all week that God's presence, God's presence is greater than God's plan. God's presence is also greater than God's promise. God had made a promise. He says, go up to the land that I promised. God made a promise to Abraham. He's like, I'm going to give you descendants as big as the stars. You know, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And this land right here, this land of Canaan, I am going to give it to you. God promised he'd give it. And he's like, I'm going to keep my promise. You will have it. So they can have the plan. They can have the promises. But they can't have his presence. And that is bad news because God's presence is greater than God's 
promises. God's presence is also greater than God's power. God's presence is also greater than God's power. In verse 2, he says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, etc., etc. I will send an angel in front of you. If you count the people groups, this stuck out to me, if you count the people groups, there's six of these ites. And they're in the land. And you know, as long as we're talking about math and the value of things, it's like if you had to drive out six people groups, how many people would you need? How many angels does God send? One. One angel. That's power. That's serious power. One angel to drive out six people groups. And God's like, I'll give it to you. Here's the plan. I'll make good on my promise. I'll give you the power. My angel's going to go ahead of you. He's going to drive them all out. We love power. How would you feel if God sent you all the power that you need? Some of you, I'm sure, are experiencing a sense of powerlessness. How would you feel if God gave you power to overcome your disease? Power to build your business? Power to overcome those that threaten you. We absolutely love power, but God promises them. He's like, you'll have all the power, all the power you need. But he denies them his presence. God's presence is greater than God's plan. It's greater than his promise. It's greater than his power. And God's presence is also greater than God's protection. God says that he'll provide them with protection. The Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, they were not just going to give up their land. I have three small kids that live in my house. They're most definitely, you know, they're in the basement most of the time. And sometimes Heather and I will be trying to have a nice little conversation. And all of a sudden we'll hear a scream. And all of a sudden a fight breaks out. And all of a sudden there's tears and you walk downstairs. And I would say a good 90% of the time, if not more, it's because one of the children decided to take something away from another children, from another child. And God's like, go to this land. Six people groups are there. Take it from them. Well, that's a really, really, really good way to make enemies. Really good way to make enemies. They're going to want to kill them. And God's like, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about it because I promise you all the protection that you need. They will not prevail against you. We love protection. We lock our doors at night. Some of us even carry guns. We have really great car seats that like expire like every like two years because they're not safe enough for our kids. I was a little blown away that when I sent my kids to school that popcorn parties have now been eliminated from the public school system because they are too dangerous. You wear your pajamas, they said, no popcorn. Somebody might choke on it and die. We are a society obsessed with safety. Give us the plan. Give us the power. Give us the protection. We all want these things desperately. Our government spends over $600 billion on protection, more than the next seven countries combined. We place a high 
a high, high value on protection. How high of a value do we place on God's presence? God's presence is also greater than God's provision. The last thing that we see is God says, go up to this land, I'll drive them out, I'll send the angel, and this land is flowing with milk and honey. He promised them a great land, the very best provision. Today it would be like entering a land filled with steak, lobster, ribs, overflowing savings accounts, four-bedroom houses, booming portfolios. But provision is less than presence. We know this. We know this. We experience this. I talked with uh, one lady in our church. She's married now and, and uh, has, has a child, and her, her parents divorced. Her parents divorced, and I think it was just this past Christmas. Um, so now they have this little, this little granddaughter. And this granddaughter, you know, should have this grandfather, but there's, there's this divorce. And so the grandfather's like, I'll send, send sends a Christmas gift. Sends a Christmas gift. But then they were out at some festival, and they, grandfather lives in the area. They're out at this festival, and here sits this couple with this child, and all of a sudden they see their grandfather, and their grandfather just turns away and doesn't even acknowledge their presence. No hug, no joy, no good to see you. I talked with another one of my friends this week whose dad abandoned the family when he was very, very young, and on occasion he'd get a gift, and he'd just take the gift, and you know what he'd do with it? He'd cry. He'd cry. Because provision is absolutely no substitute for a person's presence. What God says to Israel here in verse 3 when he says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, God's like, you can have all of my stuff, you just can't have me. Take it all, but I'm not coming with. It's like a divorce. It's like a divorce where one spouse says to another, hey, I know that we were in this relationship together, but keep the stuff, have the stuff, you just can't have me. And I've had to ask myself the question all week long, and maybe you're all better people than I am, that's easily possible. But I've had to ask myself all week long, If God gave me the plan and the protection and the provision and the promises, if he gave me all of that and said, but I'm out, what would my reaction be? Would I say, deal, so that I don't have to worry about this relationship thing and I can just have a nice cush life? Or would I grieve? Presence is greater than provision. In Israel, for their hard-heartedness, they actually knew this. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, 
They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Apparently, they had some left. They didn't throw everything into the furnace to make the golden calf. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to, this, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. When they heard this word, they considered it disastrous. This is a disaster. Moses is ticked. Tablets are smashed. Idol is ground into dust. They drank it. Slaughter of 3,000 people. I mean, there was blood everywhere. You look at the tribe of Levi, and there's blood on their swords. They just buried 3,000 people. And then God's not done yet, so he sends this plague. Now, you would think, that sounds pretty, pretty bad. That's pretty bad. But the people weren't mourning over that. They weren't taking over, off their ornaments after that. What pushed them over the edge was when God said, you can't have my presence. That is the disaster. The disaster is you can't have my presence. And I wonder if we can put up that slide again of all the things. I got a question. Would you consider that a disaster? Would you consider that a disaster if God gave you everything on the right but denied you his presence? Would you mourn? Because when I look at those words on the right, I see the American dream. I see the American dream. We want all of those things, but do we want God's presence? If God offered you all of that, would you say disaster or would you say deal? I fear that way too many of us, way too many of us would say deal and not disaster. I think sometimes the greatest thing that we overlook in the Christian life is the very simplest thing. The very simplest thing. The greatest thing, the greatest thing that we overlook is the very simplest. Raise your hand if you've heard that um, God is a person that wants a relationship with you. Yeah, it's like kindergarten, right? It's like kindergarten Christianity. God is a person that wants a relationship with you. Kindergarten. Room filled of people that know that. But how many of you experienced the sweet presence of God this week? The sweet presence of God. Yeah, see how it drops. We've got to return to the basics. The basics is God is a person that wants a relationship with you. We don't read our Bibles and pray and have quiet times so that God isn't angry with us. We do them so we can experience God's presence, God's presence in our lives. We selfishly settle for so much less than God's presence, obsessing over wanting other things besides it. It reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, where Martha's all busy and Mary is, Jesus is in the house, so Mary is at the feet 
of Jesus. And what Jesus says to Martha, when Martha's upset, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. What was the good portion? What was the one thing that is necessary? The presence of God. But the presence of God was withdrawn from Israel and is withdrawn because of their sin. That's the next point. My sin divides me from God's presence. My sin divides me from God's presence. In verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. There is separation all over this text. It starts at the very beginning. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people. I would expect that that would say, depart, go up from here, you and my people, whom you have brought. I, again, he's like, you know, they're your people. You take your people that you brought up. Reminds me of earlier this week, we had our house inspected. Who's had a house inspected, right? That is a bad day. That is a bad day. And guess what? I, I was at work. I was at work, which leaves Heather and our three well-behaved, helpful children, no, at home to try to prep for a home inspection at 4. And so I called at 3.30, said, hey, how are things going? And she couldn't get the vacuum back together. We had this vacuum, and she's like, I can't get the vacuum on. I can't vacuum the house. I can't get this band back on. It's not working. It's not working. And I'm like, so, well, FaceTime me. And I'm like, okay, try that, try that. None of this is working. I tried to be helpful. I'm not sure if it was. And all of a sudden, the phone call ended. The phone call ended with, you know, guess who was playing with the vacuum earlier? Micah. The people laughing know Micah. And so the, the, the phone call ends with, if your son would stop playing with the vacuum, emotional separation. <laughs> emotional separation. But that's God. God's like, your people that you brought out because God is a person, and God is a person that experiences emotion, and God is a person that grieves, and God is a person that separates, and what separates you from God is your sin. It keeps on going, this tent of meeting. It's not inside the camp, it's outside the camp. 
In verse 3, he says, I will not go with you. I'm not coming with. Separation. You know what this whole book is about? This whole book is about you experiencing God's presence. That's the whole thing. It's not a rule book. It's not a guide book. It's not a do this and don't do that book, even though it's very helpful in all those things. Those are all secondary. Primarily, this is a book about you experiencing God's presence. And if there's anything that's clear in this book from beginning to end, it is that sin separates you from the presence of God. Your sin divides you from God's presence. There's this story in Exodus, starts in 32, it ends in 34, so it's just three, three chapters. The 12 chapters before it are about making the tabernacle. Why? So that they can experience God's presence. The six chapters after this are about the construction of the tabernacle so that they can experience God's presence. This book ends in chapter 40 with the presence of God dropping down and filling the tabernacle. And then they build a temple, which is about God's presence. And then that temple gets destroyed, which is like, oh no, we don't have God's presence. And then this little baby is born to a virgin called Mary, and they call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then that baby grows up, and he dies on a cross, and he leaves, and everybody's wondering, where's the presence of God going to go? And then he comes back from the dead and goes, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to send the helper. And then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. The whole book is about God's presence. In Revelation 22, yes, there's streets of gold. Yes, there's no sin, which I'm really, really, really looking forward to. But the whole thing is, I will dwell with you. Beginning to end, the book is about you in the presence of God. But your sin separates you from God's presence. How can a holy God, if the plan is God with us, if the plan is, you know, I'm going to be with you, you know, Adam and Eve walking around with God, Genesis 3, she grabs an apple or something, takes a bite, boom, you're out. Separate from my presence. The whole story of the book is how will God dwell with his people? God's people have the same problem. This is, this is another tension in the book. God's people have got the same problem that Pharaoh had at the beginning of the book. Hard hearts, stiff necks, and idolatrous worship. Same thing. What happened to Pharaoh? Destroyed. What's going to happen to God's people? Well, he says, I'll destroy you. He actually says, consume you. When I think of the word consume, I actually think of, um, we were just on vacation up at uh, my parents' house, and me and my brothers, one of our goals is to keep a fire going for the entire week. You know, the fire should just never go out. And so, dad has to stock the wood pile pretty good before we get there. So, 
uh, you know, he, he goes and he's like, hey, I'm ready for you guys to come because the wood pile's totally full. And it's like, okay. So, and then at the end of the week, it looked like this because we just kept on throwing in wood, throwing in wood, throwing in wood, consuming it. You know what's left of it, right? Does that not amaze anybody else? Where did all that wood go? It was consumed. It was consumed, and that's the word that God uses where he's like, hey, if I'm going to go with you and you're going to have this idolatrous sin problem, the problem is, is that I'm going to consume you because our God is not a God that coddles sin. He's a God that consumes it. He's a consuming fire, and our sin, it separates us. It divides us from God. What's the worst news ever? This is the worst news ever. God saying to you, I won't dwell with you. That's it. Worst news ever. Worst news ever is not cancer. Worst news ever is not death. Worst news is, I won't dwell with you. This is why David, after sinning with Bathsheba, writes in Psalm 51, Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is why Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he's getting the nails driven through his hands and feet, and the thorn put on his head, he's like, Lord, forgive them for they, like, talk about a, a totally normal thing to say. Like, he's totally, at least what the Bible says, he's like, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. We don't even get, ow. But we get, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the emotional pain of being separated from God trumps any physical pain that you could ever go through. And this is why the most terrifying words that I think anyone could ever hear are found at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where God looks at people on Judgment Day and says, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me. I never knew you. God is a person. It's so simple. God is a person that wants a relationship with you. He wants you and him to dwell together in each other's presence. But our sin divides us from God's presence. If you have it all and you lack God's presence, you have nothing. And if you have nothing, and you have God's presence, you have everything. How do you get God's presence? Moses knew that the presence was a big deal. In verse 12, in my Bible it's, it says Moses' intercession above there. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. 
and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is Moses talking to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's really, really, I'll get to this a little bit. There's a really, really unfortunate translation there in the ESV. Pretty much every other Bible translates that if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. In the previous verse, God's like, hey, I'll go with you. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 not good enough. Go with us. Go with us. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is, it, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. The last point is God's son. Kind of a math theme today, if you didn't catch it. God's son plus my repentance equals God's presence. And you may look at the text and you may be like, I don't see God's son anywhere. And you'd be right. You don't see Jesus anywhere in this text, but at the same time, he's everywhere. Yes and no. He's not really mentioned, but he's everywhere. This is Moses' second intercession before God. He did so in 32 as well. In verse 11, Moses has access into God's presence. In verse 11 where it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, which is a figure of speech. No one can see God's face and die That's for, or, and live. That's next week. As a man speaks to a friend. You know, Moses had access Moses had a relationship with God. It's also interesting that Moses wasn't part of the rebellion. And he keeps access to God's presence and the people lose it. In verse 12, God says to Moses, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. That could also be translated, with you I am well pleased. I know you by name. With you, I am well pleased. That can be said of one person. And it's not Moses. Because Moses had let God down plenty. You look in the New Testament to the baptism of Jesus Christ. There's a voice from heaven. It says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We're looking forward to Christ in this text. In verse 14, he said, my presence will go with Moses. My presence will go with you. Just him. My presence will go with you. Verse 15, Moses is not content with having God's presence. He wants the people to have God's presence. In verse 17, Moses is right in God's sight. In chapter 32, if you look back to chapter 32, Moses, after he knows this sin, he's like, I'm going to go back up to the mountain and maybe I can make atonement for you. Maybe I can make things right between you and God. Moses is representing Christ. 
It couldn't be more clear. He goes back up and he says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from the book you have written. Moses is like, if it's a choice between me dying or them dying, kill me. Moses represents a guiltless mediator. He wasn't part of the rebellion. Known by name, by God, that had found favor with God, that was willing to lay down his life on a mountain so that a rebellious people could experience God's presence. Moses represents a guiltless mediator, known by name, by God, that had found favor with God, that it was willing to lay down his life on a mountain so that a rebellious people could experience God's presence. Moses represents God's son, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Moses represents God's son, Jesus Christ. The people's sin had separated them. It had divided them from God. And God is going to restore that relationship. God's presence will be reestablished through the mediation of Moses. And God's presence in our lives is reestablished through the mediation of Jesus Christ. God's half is sending his son to take our place. What's our half? Repentance. Do you want to experience the presence of God? Repent. Your sin divides you from God. Your sin separates you from God's presence. What do you have to do? You have to turn to God's Son and you have to repent. This repentance should be visible. When we look at this story, we see four signs of repentance that restores the relationship. The first is that they mourn. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. In other words, they're sad. They're not happy. They're not joyful. They're not like, yay. They're crying. And repentance usually looks like tears as you realize that your sin has offended a holy God and that you are cast out of his presence because of your sin. Sorrow precedes the joy. They mourned. Then it said, no one put on their ornaments. Ornaments are like earrings and rings and stuff that make you look good. As I read this, it's like, of course they had to strip their ornaments off because they knew that they were ugly. They knew that their sin was ugly. Why would they dress up and make themselves look good? It reminds me of taking off your self-righteousness. Stripping yourself of, hey, I'm not good, Lord. I'm not good. I'm the one that caused the divide in this relationship. Can you be humble and extravagant at the same time? They stripped off their ornaments, stripped themselves of their self-righteousness, stripped themselves of the, their hypocrisy. And if there's anything that'll kill repentance in a hurry, it's self-righteousness or hypocrisy. They mourned. They didn't put on their ornaments. And a pretty big change of behavior as well at that tent of meeting, whenever Moses 
went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his own tent door. Now that's different behavior from chapter 32. The last time they saw Moses go up to God, they're all like, hey, let's have a party. Make an idol. Aaron, you do it. Let's have a party. They broke loose is what the Bible says. Now they're patient. Ryan talked about that last week, the patience of waiting. We have a patient people now because repentance is visible on the inside and the outside. Repentance is visible. They mourn. They strip themselves. They change their behavior. They were patient. Verse 10 says, And when all the people saw the pillar and the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. So they're worshiping, they're worshiping right now. Last chapter, they're bowing down to a calf. Now they're, things have changed. Repentance. Worshiping rightly. God's son plus my repentance equals God's presence. It's simple math. Doesn't matter if this is the first time you're hearing this ever. Your sin separates you from God. You will not experience God's presence. That is the worst news ever. That is the worst news ever. I can't say that enough to those of you that might be holding out on submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know how terrifying it will be for God to say, depart from me, I never knew you? So I beg of you to repent. I beg of you to repent. But it's also the same for us that if maybe we've known this 70 years and maybe you've been saved forever. The, the equation doesn't change. Do you want to experience God's presence through his son, through repentance? Sin and God's presence don't go together. If you want to experience more of God's presence, repent of your sin and go through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. The story of Exodus 33 is the story of the entire Bible. God has made a way by his mercy and grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't earn it. God will point it out next week when we get together. Why, why are they saved? It's because I'm gracious and I'm merciful. That's why they're saved. God has made a way by his mercy and grace through his son for you to experience his presence. And for those of us that have accepted Christ's Son and repented of our sin. We have this beautiful, beautiful promise that never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't deserve to be in your presence, Lord, and yet you have made a way. You have made a way through your son, Jesus, for us to experience your presence. You have gifted us with your spirit, Lord, which lives inside of each and every one of us. We thank you for that. We can't thank you enough. Lord, forgive us for the times where we'd prefer to have your plan, where we'd prefer to have your power, 
where we just want you for your stuff and we don't want you for you. Lord, we need you. We need you. Help us to realize how much we need you. You don't need us. We need you. Help us to value your presence rightly, Lord, to seek after it. Not to read or pray or fast or serve, Lord, so that we may end up with some type of your approval, Lord, but that we would experience your presence. Lord, teach us that you are a person that wants a relationship with us. Give us your presence, Lord. We just thank you so much for making a way for us to have it. It's in Jesus' name I pray.